This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Terawan Saranai and welcome once more to the program. Over the last year or so, we've been steadily treading the path to enlightenment as followed in the Tibetan Gelugpa tradition. This path was first described by the great Indian master Atisha when he went to Tibet and the people there asked him for a straightforward path very ordinary folk without much intellectual capacity could practice. He condensed the Buddha's teachings into a step-by-step set of instructions on practice and meditation that eventually leads to enlightenment. His text with these instructions is called The Lamp on the Path to Enlightenment and it formed the basis for lots of commentary by various great masters, in particular Lama Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Gelukpa tradition. He wrote a tome called The Great Treatise on the Stage of the Path to Enlightenment and basically that is where these radio programs are coming from. The text is divided into three, the practices of those who want good coming rebirths in samsara, the practices of those who want to be free from samsara altogether, and the practices of those who take on the responsibility to liberate not only themselves, but all others from samsara as well. In these programs, we've now gone through the first two divisions and are discussing the practices of the third, those of those who want to liberate all beings from samsara, commonly known in Buddhism as the bodhisattvas. Once someone has decided to become a bodhisattva and has taken the vows, they practice the actions of a bodhisattva known as the six perfections, that is, generosity, morality, patience, enthusiasm, concentration, and wisdom. We've gone through the practices of the perfections of generosity and morality and have been discussing how to develop the perfection of patience. This, those of you who were with us last time, will know the perfection is divided into three divisions. Patience in the face of harm from others, patience in the face of adversity, and patience in thinking about the Dharma. We've covered the first two of these and are now going to look at the third, the patience in thinking about the Dharma. But first, let's set our motivation as we usually do, directing any positive energy from this program to a purpose worth more than just whiling away time. If you can, direct it to gaining enlightenment for yourself and all other beings. That will be the best motivation because the number of beings is so vast. We could say it's infinite. The result will also therefore be very great. So take a moment now to set such a motivation. Thank you. Today we're going to talk a bit about the patience that we need to cultivate when practicing the Dharma. If we look at our lives, we'll see that most of what we do is directed to gaining some happiness or freeing ourselves from some suffering. In the normal run of things, we're only concerned with the happiness we can get and the suffering we can avoid in this very life we're living now. We tend to think that we don't really know what comes after death, so it's better to concentrate on what we do know which is this life, and make that as comfortable and as pleasant as possible. Of course, as Buddhists, we know there's a fatal flaw in thinking like that. After this life is over, we have to go through another life, and after that, another one, and after that, yet another one, and so on. The amount of time we will spend in coming lives is therefore much, much greater than the time we have in this life. In fact, in terms of time, This life is a mere blip compared to all our future lives. 
So if we don't think of creating the causes for happiness in coming lives and only think of creating this life's happiness, we're being a bit short-sighted, to say the least. Now you might, uh, you might ask, how can we be sure there are other lives after this? Maybe there aren't, and then we may as well not worry about them. I grant that I don't know from my own remembered experience whether I have previous lives or not, although I do believe that I have, and I will have future lives. My reasoning, however, is that we need insurance. If you think about it, after death we either blot out or carry on to another existence. There's no other way we could exist. If we carry on to another existence, either that existence depends on this life in some way, or it doesn't. Again, there's no third way. So after death in this life, we have three ways of continuing. Not at all, into an existence that depends on this one, or into an existence that doesn't depend on this one. Of course, if we just blot out, or if our next existence is not dependent on this life, we don't have to worry. We can do anything we like in this life, and none of it will have consequences for us, at least. However, if it's true that our coming existence does depend on this life, we'd better be very careful to create the causes in this existence to have happiness not only now, but in that life as well. So, no matter which of the three possibilities is the reality, how should we react to be sure of our future? Obviously, in this life, we should create the causes to be happy in a coming life, even though we're not very sure we will have a future life. That way, whatever happens, we can be certain to do our best to provide some happiness for our future. If we just blot out or go into a life that does not depend on this one, what would we have lost in this life by acting as though our next life's happiness is dependent on this one? Nothing. But if the reality is that we do go into a life dependent on this one and we haven't set up any causes for happiness, we will just suffer foolishly. It's a little like setting up a fund for your retirement. We can't say we will get to retirement age. We might well die before then. But still, just in case, we make some provision for it, don't we? In the same way, we can make provision for our coming life or lives, even though we may not be totally convinced we will ever get there. Incidentally, talking about coming lives, I recently received an email with a link to a story about a book that came out last year called Soul Survivor. That is spelt S-O-U-L rather than S-O-L-E. It tells the story of a young American boy who remembered his previous life as a fighter pilot in World War II. When a toddler, he was fascinated by fighter planes and knew them intimately. As a child, his drawings were all of air battles, bombings and so forth against the Japanese. During the night, he had nightmares of being shot down while flying a fighter plane, and when his parents asked him about them, he told them that his name had been James, he'd flown a Corsair aircraft, and he'd been based on an aircraft carrier ship called the USS Natoma Bay. His father wanted to disprove that his son was remembering a past life, and so started investigating his story. He spoke to some of the veterans who served on the Natoma Bay, and it transpired that one of the pilots serving on the ship, a James Houston, was shot down and killed off the coast of Japan. When the boy first met these veterans, he recognized them and called them by name, 
even though he'd never met them before. The boy's parents also tracked down James Houston's only living sister, and the boy again told them things about her and the family that only their brother could have known. When the Japanese heard the story, they flew the boy and his family to where the plane had crashed, and without any help, the boy pointed out exactly where the plane had gone down. At the site, the family went through a memorial service, and the boy experienced a cathartic experience his mother described as heart-wrenching. And later the boy said, I hope it helps people understand how precious life is and how fast it can be just blown away. And I also, also hope it opens people's eyes up to reincarnation, that it is a possibility, it's not a lie. It's interesting to note that after that, the boys' drawings were all full of peaceful seas with dolphins, wells, and ships under sail. If you like, you can check out the story for yourself on YouTube. Just enter Soul Survivor in the search window. There are many such stories around the world, and one scientist, Dr. Ian Stevenson of the University of Virginia, has do documented many of them in a lifetime of rigorous scientific study of reincarnation. Again, search on the internet and you will find books by him. Tom Schroeder, an award-winning journalist, accompanied Dr. Stevenson on some of his investigations and also wrote a book called Old Souls about his experiences. Of course, when it comes to rebirth, I'm biased. As a Buddhist monk, I strongly believe that we do go from life to life as the Buddha described. But that doesn't mean I expect everyone to especially in the West, though I do hope people will not just dismiss rebirth out of hand, but investigate for themselves. It is really very important, for if it is true, as the Buddha said, that our lives depend very closely on each other, then that should strongly influence how we lead this life. How, you may ask, does this tie in with the patience of practicing the Dharma? Well, of course, if we want to lay down the causes for happiness in future lives, we have to find out what those causes are and then implement them. That is where the Dharma comes in. For from a Buddhist point of view, the, Dharma, the Buddha taught how we should live to obtain happiness not only in future lives, but long-term happiness, that is liberation and enlightenment. And so it would be best if we could practice that as much as possible and give up the causes for suffering as much as possible. However, practicing the Dharma, or if you like, creating the causes for future happiness, demands some renunciation of the attractions that bring us just this life's happiness. So much of chasing the, this life's happiness means short-term happiness that just creates a thirst in us for more of the same. For instance, once we have the taste for coffee, how easy is it to just give it up cold turkey without any more lusting after it? For many of us, quite difficult. We can't go around giving in to all our lusts in this life and expect to work ourselves free of suffering. As lust is part of the causes of our problems, we have to work to give it up, and that is going to create some difficulties for us. Similarly with our aversions. How easy is it to be really accepting of someone who irritates the heck out of you? But as long as we have that impatience and irritation on our minds, we can never find the long-term happiness the Buddha speaks of. If our lusts and aversions go with us into our next life, they will just afflict us again, just as they did in this life, only stronger because we've practiced them so much in this life. 
For long-term happiness in coming lives and for liberation and enlightenment, we have to give up such cravings and aversions. We have to change our minds, our attitudes, emotional reactions, and so on. And that can be really painful. It's horrid when you get angry, for instance, and you can't let it out and you can't suppress it. You just have to sit with it and be with it. It's like knives cutting into you, isn't it? But working with our unruly minds is the only way we can finally rid ourselves of the suffering we carry from life to life. So to experience and work with our suffering and its causes is not easy by any means. Dharma work is painful work, and we're going to need lots of patience to get through it all. The Buddha said that when he looked back to all his previous lives to find the, the first one, he could not see it. So if we don't have a first life, imagine all the conditioning we've gone through in all our previous lives that is still sitting in our subconscious waiting to be worked out one way or the other. The more we can focus on studying, contemplating and meditating on the Dharma, the better we will be at making progress to long-term happiness. And that means we need to develop the patience to practice as much as we can. If the mind becomes unhappy or frustrated when thinking or contemplating on the Buddha's teachings, it will be very difficult to make progress at all. And have you ever tried meditating when your mind just doesn't want to go anywhere near the meditation cushion? That's difficult, isn't it? There are many ways to meditate on the Dharma and to gain more knowledge and realizations, but one of the easiest is to contemplate the various topics that Atisha and Lama Tsongkhapa worked out. These topics, which we have followed in this series of radio programs, follow a kind of natural progression and give us a good understanding of what the Buddha taught without having to do a lot of research ourselves. If we don't investigate and just do whatever practices we think are okay, or that some unlearned person has told us, we could just end up in a muddle and not actually going along the path to enlightenment at all. It is said that practicing the earlier meditations prepares the minds for the later ones, and I think this is true whatever tradition we follow. We start with simpler meditations to make the mind familiar, and then as our knowledge and realizations grow, we can do the more advanced practices. If we neglect the foundational practices and just jump into the higher ones, it'll be difficult to be successful. So the patience of thinking about the Dharma is investigating the Buddha's teachings and what you have to practice, and then systematically practicing to develop renunciation, concentration, and wisdom. And if you're practicing the Mahayana, renunciation, concentration, bodhicitta, and wisdom. If we get fascinated by the wisdom of the nature of reality and just practice that without first developing renunciation, it will be extremely difficult to gain liberation. We might get a very good intellectual understanding of the nature of reality, but deep realization will be difficult. Like the physicist who understands quantum physics in his head and deduces that nothing is as we see it, but still goes home and has an argument with his wife. As I said before, it will take us a long time to get to the end of the path to enlightenment, but we do need the energy and patience to continue our practice through all the difficulties that arise. And definitely when we start practicing the Dharma, difficulties will come, often thick and fast. It will be easy to give up, saying it's too hard, but as one Lama said, better not to start, but once started, better to finish. Once we have started practicing the Dharma, it's better to continue to the end, 
for giving up halfway through will make it doubly difficult if in the future, and I'm also referring to future lives, we want to start again. So we need to really develop patience with the difficulties of practice and develop what one commentator calls a professional approach to our practice. That more or less completes the discussion on the three kinds of patience, but whichever we are practicing, it would be best if we can do so with the three supreme qualities that I mentioned when we spoke about generosity and morality. Those of you following the programs may or may not remember, but I'll go through them again, as we haven't mentioned them for a long time. The first is supreme reliance, and this means that we rely on bodhicitta as our motivation. Basically, the thought is, through this practice of patience, may I and all living beings be freed of suffering and quickly attain enlightenment. Then the supreme method is seeing oneself, the practice, and the object of the practice as all completely free of inherent independent existence. It is all just the process of causes, conditions, and parts coming together, changing instant by instant, and parting again. There is no real inherently existing me practicing patience, no real findable object for patience, and the practice of patience depends entirely on the conditions and causes being created in the situation. If we don't recognize this and think of ourselves as some kind of real, inherently existing and independent person, the object and the practice of patience also is real and independent, we could get the idea that we're some kind of martyr to patience. Or we could feel we're so good being patient when others would get angry. Or we, we could have got angry before. Actually trying to practice patience, I found failure is a very good way to gauge where my practice is. For me, anyway, it's all too easy to fail being patient, and then I realize that even though I try, I've still got a long way to go. That certainly doesn't do my pride any good at times when I do manage a little bit of patience. Just reminding myself of my failures is enough to deflate any idea of self-important accomplishment. Then the third supreme quality is dedication. Here we just dedicate our practice to gaining enlightenment not only for ourselves but for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Like the motivation, the dedication then becomes very vast and any merit we create will not be destroyed by anger. Advanced practitioners will also practice with supreme object, supreme purpose and supreme purity. Supreme object just means that we don't practice patience differently with different people or situations. For instance, we don't practice patience with our friends who might get a bit out of line, but not with the people we don't like. Everyone gets the same treatment as best as we can manage it. Then the supreme purpose is to bring temporary and ultimate benefit to all other beings, even though we might only be practicing in one particular situation or with one particular being. So, for instance, your partner might be getting on your nerves, but you just stay calm and practice what you know of patience. But instead of thinking that the practice is just to benefit you and your partner, you could think that you are practicing so that all beings everywhere benefit, especially in whatever relationship they develop with you. And practicing with supreme purity means keeping our minds as free as possible from afflictive emotions such as anger, pride and so on, and their residual effects on our minds. These afflictive emotions are the obstructions that prevent us from attaining freedom from cyclic existence, and their residue, subtle stains on our minds, are the obstructions to omniscience. 
Now remember we talked about patience being one of the six perfections. Well, we can practice patience in conjunctions with the six perfections themselves, as we did with morality and generosity. So, for instance, if we practice generosity with patience, we instruct others how to practice patience and lead them into the practice. Much as I'm doing now, I guess, if you haven't considered this practice before. Then practicing ethics with patience means being careful not to break any of our vows while we're practicing, and also being careful not to harm others. Practicing patience with patience is allowing the tendencies we create by our practice to strengthen our patience so that we can practice continuously in the future. And practicing patience with joyous effort is, as it sounds, being patient with lots of joy and, joy and energy to overcome any obstacles to becoming increasingly more patient. Keeping the mind undistracted and calm during the practice is concentration with patience. And finally, using wisdom with patience means knowing how to be skillful with the practice and knowing what is right and wrong patience. Also, it means knowing that oneself, the object and the practice, are all free of independent inherent existence. At a beginner stage, it may be a bit too much to ask to practice with all these corollaries, so we should just do the best we can especially trying to practice with the three supreme qualities, making sure our motivation is bodhicitta, understanding that oneself, the practice and the object are all free of inherent independent existence, and dedicating our practice to attaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. We can aspire to do all the rest later. Now we've covered the practice of the perfection of patience. For the rest of the program, let's sit in contemplation of the patience of thinking about the Dharma for a while. Sit comfortably and bring your mind onto your breath, letting the thoughts come and go without being involved in them. your life up to now, and how much time you've spent on just the happiness of this life, and how much time on practicing for future lives. Examine your day-to-day -day activities from morning to night.
Mostly we spend our time just on the happiness of this life, eating, working, sleeping, socializing and so on. But future lives are much longer than this one. Why do we not spend more time on ensuring the happiness of those lives? Think about your Dharma practice. Is it easy confronting your emotional turmoil and learning how to deal with it constructively? Is it easy to sit and meditate? Is it easy to practice patience with those who irritate you and with situations that seem to go wrong all the time? Is it easy to view all beings everywhere with the same love and compassion? And how easy is it to see that things do not have independent inherent existence like we think they do? is not easy so we need lots of patience to keep at it even when it's hard because if we don't practice now what will happen in our future lives we will have few causes for happiness and so experience lives of great suffering is that what you want we must practice now so that when we have that we will have good lives in the future to continue on the path to enlightenment Time is up, so thanks for joining us today, and please do so again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from this program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thanks again, and goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.